Hey, everybody, it's Reed. And before we get going today, I just want to remind everybody about the Lincoln Project Gear Shop. We have T-shirts, hoodies, beanies, coffee mugs, your favorite Made in America Lincoln Project gear that you need in your house, your family and friends want for Christmas, for birthdays, for anniversaries, makes a great gift any time of year. And here's a special offer we're running. Throughout the month of December, you can receive a free Lincoln Project Christmas ornament with any purchase. I hope you'll take advantage of it, and Merry Christmas. And now, here's the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, for our last episode before Christmas, I'm once again coming to you solo to answer questions that come from you, the listeners and members of The Lincoln Project community. We at The Lincoln Project love the smart and thoughtful questions that come from y'all on social media, from emails and town halls, and are always looking forward to hearing what you all want to know. So if you have a question, don't hesitate to ask, and let's get into it. So our first topic today is about Texas. So let's start here. Scotty Whiteman asks, what are your opinions of the Abbott Beto race in Texas? So I would say this is that the filing deadline just passed. So the candidates in the race for the March primary are the people we're going to see. I think that Beto has a even money chance right now of being victorious. And I think that most of the things that he needs to do are run as good and consistent and disciplined a campaign as he can. I think it needs to be upbeat. I think it needs to be thoughtful. And I think it needs to hold Greg Abbott to account for 20 plus years in office when necessary, which is just about all the time. But I would also say this is that a lot of the roads for Beto to win in November probably lead through things that neither he nor Greg Abbott can control. I think you've seen a lot of news as we come up on a year after the blackouts in Texas that cost more than 70 people their lives, that if the lights go out, Greg Abbott's in a lot of trouble. It won't matter you know, how many businesses have moved to the state. It won't matter what the unemployment rate is. He and his administration and people who control the power grid are responsible for it have said the lights are good, the lights won't go out. If they go out, he's toast. And so I think that it's going to be a tough race, right? Once Abbott gets through his primary and it'll get crazier for him before that, you know, they're going to dump millions of dollars on Beto's head to try and bury him under things like guns and the border. But what we've seen is that I think that for a lot of Texans, the Abbott show is wearing thin. And I think also adding to those externalities is not just the power grid, but also COVID and specifically Omicron. If that shuts down schools, if that harms the economy, if he continues to not take it seriously or is perceived to not take it seriously because he's taken so little else seriously, then I think he's going to be in a lot of trouble. All right. Amy asks, Beto is great, but would the Democrats' chances of winning the governorship or any Texas seat for that matter be increased by running pro-gun Democrats? Well, I would say this is that just like with pro-life and pro-choice, pro-gun and anti-gun is a black and white description of a very gray topic. I would venture to say that in Texas, like there are in many states, there are many responsible gun-owning Democrats. Whether or not that means that you're for the sort of grotesque transformation of what the Second Amendment or the interpretation of the Second Amendment has become is really a litmus test. And you just have to remember that for Republicans, you know, for Republican base voters, especially anything other than everybody carrying a six shooter on their hip is never going to be pro-gun enough. So, you know, I, I think that it's a hard line to walk. 
again, because the parties are so polarized and because they have so many stakeholders, both sides of them do, that, you know, trying to be a blue dog Democrat on something like guns, I think is very, very difficult because you have to take into account for the fact that kids have to deal with active shooter drills. We saw in Michigan earlier this year, just a month ago, four kids shot at their high school. Those are issues that we must absolutely address. But in the superheated context of a campaign, those things often get distorted. And what we've seen, unfortunately, is that a lot of Democratic candidates, rather than finding a position and holding strong to it, get spooked by the first disagreement they might get on something and try and walk their way out of it or talk around it or be, you know, oh, I'm for this and I'm for that. And that's just things get very, very hard. And that's the other part, too, is I'm not sure how many Democrats in Texas or anywhere are running for office, you know, as, quote, a pro-gun candidate. All right. Harry Selden 2100 on Twitter asks, what is the best case scenario for us Texas Democrats? If we win every close state race, what would the balance of power look like in Austin? Would we have sufficient majorities to begin to undo the damage that Abbott and company have wrought on us? I mean, look, if you win every close state race, remember that no Democrat has won a statewide campaign, I think, since like the mid 90s. Right. So you're going on three decades here. I think that any majority by Democrats in either house, I think, starts to have an effect. But I would say that unless you can win the governor's office, the lieutenant governor's office, the attorney general's office, then some pretty significant pickups in the legislative seats, it's going to take a little while. You know, it's a lot easier to make things bad than it is to make things good. But I should say this, though, that should not discourage Texas Democrats from getting out and fighting as hard as they can, from making sure that they hold ground with Latino voters in the Rio Grande Valley, that they do not ignore rural voters and exurban voters. So I think there is a lot of possibility out there, especially given how fast the state has grown and where those people have come from. A lot of places, you know, the Pacific Northwest, California, the Mountain West, the state is different than it was 10 years ago, but Democrats need to find those candidates in those races where they can be successful. All right. Teresa True North on Instagram asks, I just moved to Texas and hate the political landscape. What's the best way to help? Well, Teresa, I would say this is that, you know, there are a lot of different groups there, again, whether or not it's working on a specific campaign, whether or not that's at the city, the county, the local level, whether or not that's a statewide race. There's always plenty of opportunities to volunteer. There's a heck of a lot of good voting rights organizations. There's the League of Women Voters. You can go and be a poll watcher or an election judge. There's no shortage of ways that you can help. And guys, all of these things help. Every last bit of it helps. And so, Teresa, what I would say is go to your county website, see what they need from an assistance perspective on election operations. If you're a Democrat, go to your local Democratic Party, see what they can do, and then take a look at the local races in your area, see what the candidates look like, see if there's someone you want to help. You know, for a city council race or a county judge race, one extra volunteer, five extra volunteers can make all the difference in the world. All right, gang, let's move past the Lone Star State and make our way northeast to the great state of West Virginia, wild, wonderful West Virginia, and talk some Build Back Better. So Stephen Satimi asks, a neo-McCarthyism has evolved within the GOP to undermine the social benefit programs of the current administration. How does the administration get the public to understand that social benefit programs are not socialist or communist constructs? Well, Stephen, I think to answer your question, you have to take a step back and a step up. The first thing that I believe that Democrats probably need to do is that when they hear the socialist or communist tag, 
not say things like, well, Social Security is socialistic and Medicare is socialistic. What they have to say is, we are not socialists. We are free market capitalists who believe that there is a massive disparity in wealth distribution in this country that is unhealthy for our people, unhealthy for our economy, and unhealthy for our democracy. There are people who need more help than others. That is not a bad thing. If someone needs help with health care, if someone needs a step up on education, those are good things, not bad things. But they have to be put into the context of we are a democracy and we are a free market economy. You have to be able to say as a democratic candidate, I am not a socialist. I'm not going to be a socialist. I'm sure as hell not a communist. And if you want to talk about socialism and communism, why don't you talk to my friends on the other side of the aisle who are helping prop up people like China, a communist country, or Russia, a formerly communist country. So remember, guys, that as much as it pains everyone to believe this, elections are not won or lost on policy. They're won or lost on politics, on belief, on values, and how people see themselves in a world that's more and more complex in a world that is harder to understand every day, one that has the specter of COVID with us, likely to be worse before it's better. And so there's just a lot of built-in angst and anxiety in the American people right now. And telling them that social benefit programs are going to help might make you feel good. But for a lot of the folks that those programs would ostensibly help, there have been other programs that we're supposed to lift them from one level of society to another or one level of economic rung to another that maybe weren't successful. Maybe they didn't see it. Maybe the money didn't get there. I don't know why. Probably not bad intentions. But I think that there's a lot of mistrust and distrust of government, but that's sort of an American thing. That's always sort of a democracy thing. But I think that there's a lot of folks who just don't trust right now. And that is a tough thing because that means that the good guys out there trying to make the case have a harder hill to climb. There's no question about it. All right. Oh, okay. Trisha. Trisha brings up the ghost of Christmas future. Trisha Mannix asks, I can't believe Joe Manchin announced his refusal to vote for Build Back Better again. Actually, I totally can. And on Fox News of all places. In response, I saw that Jen Psaki indicated that Democrats would be turning up the political pressure on Manchin. What do you think that pressure will look like and why didn't we see it sooner? So, Tricia, let me say this. We at the Lincoln Project are sick of being right. There was no question in my mind, and I, I think I would venture to say for the other folks' minds, that Joe Manchin was never going to vote for this. In fact, he even admitted that on a West Virginia radio station. He was never going to be for this. What Joe Manchin was for was Joe Manchin. He was for the attention. He was for the money. He was for the begging and pleading of a White House on one side, the attention that he was getting from people like Mitch McConnell and big donors and, you know, standing in the scrum of dozens of reporters every afternoon asking what he wanted. Joe Manchin never wanted anything. He wanted to be in the middle of things. And finally, he'd run out that string and he realized that with the Senate going into adjournment for the rest of the year, that he was going to have to say something. And yeah, he chose Fox News on purpose because I think that Whatever he complains about, you know, staff being rude to him or whatever, staff shouldn't be rude to a senator, that he wanted to give a big middle finger to the people who thought that they could push him around. I think a couple of other things. I don't know what levers Democrats have to pull on Joe Manchin. Chuck Schumer's not going to remove him from committees. He's not going to cut off his campaign funding. They're worried that he's going to switch parties, you know, which would immediately 
rejigger the balance of power in the United States Senate and put Mitch McConnell, theoretically, in the majority leader's seat, which means that Joe Biden would even get a second year of trying to govern with any appreciable ability. And so I think that whatever it is they had on him or they thought they had on him, they clearly didn't. I think that sometimes the crucible of Washington, D.C. blinds people to what's going on. I mean, Joe Manchin seems to me had been pretty clear for a long time he wanted nothing to do with this. And I said something on Twitter earlier that, and it, you know, just like Washington, D.C. isn't the real world, Twitter isn't either. You know, now there's a whole bunch of folks saying, but look at all the money this would put into West Virginia. Look at all these programs, just like back to Stephen's previous question. Remember that West Virginia is a 70% Trump state, 70%. Joe Biden didn't even get to 30. You could tell them that gold coins are going to fall from the sky, courtesy of the government, and they would say, it's just going to go into the wrong guy's pocket anyway, and my life's not going to get better. Is that rational? It's not. Is it realistic? It probably is. And so what I'm saying is that like, if Joe Manchin said, I'm doing what my constituents want me to do, he was probably telling the truth. When someone says, well, you know, this particular part of the Build Back Better plan, you know, got 66% approval in West Virginia, I also believe that. Doesn't mean that those things can't coexist. Doesn't mean they do coexist. Also doesn't mean that one has anything to do with another, which is if Joe Manchin, who I assume wants to run for re-election in 2024, was seen as the guy who was the tax and spin liberal and not the guy who used a rifle to shoot a hole in the Affordable Care Act, the actual text of the bill when he was running in 2010, he'd probably be done for. Now, he's probably done for anyway, right? And that's his own thing to contend with is that he doesn't understand that his political career in West Virginia is probably over. And as I saw earlier today, the guy's like 76 or 77. Like he will be old when he runs for reelection. And so to think that there wouldn't be another Democrat who would run against him in a Democratic primary or a true like Trumpy Republican who would run against him in a Republican primary is also wishful thinking on his part. So, I mean, my opinion is this, is that will Joe Manchin get behind something in January or February? He might because, you know, he can say, OK, I fought the good fight. I was there and I stood athwart, you know, massive spending in a time of inflation. But now is the time for us to get to work. Will he do that? Sure. Remember, guys, that he doesn't have a core. He's going to navigate based on his benefit, not the benefit of West Virginians or Americans or anybody else. Take people at their word when they say something publicly. Joe Manchin sat on like the back deck of his boat talking to people and like told these people to get out of the way. He drives his Maserati around Washington, D.C. His daughter jacked the price of insulin like he owns money in coal mines like he is who he is. And don't be surprised when he acts like it. I would also say this, guys, is we've gotten a lot of you know requests lately like you should go in and attack Joe Manchin. I mean, if that's going to make people feel better, like I get it, but it's not going to change anything. The truth is, is that there are probably six, eight, ten Republicans who are either leaving office or moderates, relatively speaking, who might be willing to go for something, but they're probably going to be willing to go for this stuff in chunks. You know, governing is not a series of Hail Marys, right? You don't throw a 70 yard pass into the end zone four straight times and hope for a touchdown, right? Governing is more like first and 10, second and six, third and two. And you push it over the line and you do that six, seven, eight times during the course of a legislative session and you hope you got done what you want to get done. And I would also say this on the numbers. As Stuart Stevens, you know, was saying, no one's going to remember the number, the cost of this plan. They're just going to know that it has a T behind it. 
and I was thinking about this earlier, is that sometimes we have to say, if it's so easy to move this number or that number, how much thinking has really gone into, like, what is it supposed to do in the first place, right? If you can go from 2.8 trillion to 1.3 trillion and everybody's fine with that, well, like, where the hell did that other $1.5 trillion go? And like, what's the objective here? Like, let's have objectives. Let's have goals we're trying to accomplish, something tangible. I think that also makes it easier for legislative members, whether or not it's members of Congress or the Senate, to go home and say, like, this is what it is I'm trying to do for y'all. But again, it has to be in the context of a bigger vision for the country. And I think that's really what we're missing right now. All right. So let's move to what the other piece of legislative priority, which I frankly think should be above Build Back Better, but that's probably not a popular opinion in Democratic Washington circles. Gary Johnson says, I am concerned that the whole issue of a voting rights bill is quickly sliding off the table and splashing on the floor so that even the cat won't lick it up. Am I paranoid? Well, Gary, first, you paint pictures with words, so thank you for that. Second, you're not paranoid. I haven't understood the hesitation from the United States Senate anyway to approach voting rights other than the overly simplistic, we don't have the votes, and if we don't have the votes, we're not going to bring it up. A lot of times in politics, guys, there's this discussion of like, what's the signal and what's the noise, right? Like what really matters and what is all the stuff that surrounds it that makes it hard to figure out like what's really going on. And, you know, people have been talking a lot about that, you know, especially in the context of like focus groups and polling and all that other stuff. But I think it really misses the point, which is if you're going to be a political leader, it's not about trying to find the signal from the noise. It's about determining what it is you believe in what you believe is best for the country and pushing that forward as hard as you can with all of the resources at your disposal. And this is what really concerns me and frustrates me about voting rights. I've said this before. Last August, when Officer Harry Dunn was speaking in front of the January 6th committee, and he was recounting how the insurgents were marching up the steps and calling him the N-word, the N-word, the N-word, we're going to kill you N-word. And what I said was, in the wake of that, I would have called the bill Immediately, I would have called the voting rights bill and said, I want Republicans in this chamber, after just having heard Officer Dunn say what he said and explain his experiences to all of us, to say no to voting rights. And, you know, would it have worked? I don't know. It might not pass anyway. But here's the point is you have to lead on the issue. You have to tell the American people, and it's our job to lead them on this, all of us who care about this, the 2022 election is about democracy. All of the other stuff doesn't matter if that goes down. If Republicans take the House, they've already said it's going to be nothing but investigations that will make the Benghazi stuff look like child's play. There will be no second two years of a Joe Biden administration from any sort of legislative goal or legislative agenda because Republicans won't allow it. It will be 100 percent spectacle, 100 percent Donald Trump and 100 percent score settling on the part of Republicans, many of whom I think were either actively or at least complicit in what we saw on January 6th getting back at their political opponents. So what I would say is this, Gary, is that when the Senate comes back from break and whenever that is, I would call the vote almost immediately, whether or not it's Joe Manchin, whether or not it's Kristen Sinema, whether or not it's all these Republicans, make them take the vote on the floor. You're for democracy or you're against it. Where do you stand? Because there's a couple other things too, which is with all of the laws being passed, as we know, at the state and local levels, in a lot of these red states or states that are controlled by Republican legislatures and governors, they're going to do everything it is they can to make sure that they win in 2022 so that they can ultimately win in 2024. Guys, the battle is upon us. 
then don't think for one second that it's not. And if the United States Senate wanted to do anything that could help preserve this democracy, it would be getting voting rights done and getting it done as quickly as possible. All right. So let's stay on people who would tear down the republic. So moving on to the January 6th insurrection, Nathan Eberlin asks, if seditionist congressmen and or senators are arrested prior to midterms, what happens to their seats? Well, Nathan, I mean, even if you're a seditionist member of Congress or senator, you're still assumed to be innocent until proven guilty. You know, they could arrest you. They could indict you. They could even start prosecution against you. None of that, even if you were convicted, can mo remove you from the ballot. Now, if you won your seat and you went to prison, you'd probably have to forfeit it. I believe back in the 80s or maybe the early 90s, there was a member of Congress from Ohio. He was a real character, this guy named Jim Traficant, who had the craziest hair in the history of Congress, went to prison. I think he was from Eastern Ohio, went to prison. I think he ran from prison, might have even won. I could be making that up. But I think he got out and then he ran again and won. So long answer to a short question is nothing happens to their seats, even if they've been arrested, if they've been indicted now, could make their chances for reelection that much more difficult, but they don't have to give up their seats. All right, gang, let's finish on something happy, COVID-19. So Dan Bergeron on Facebook asks, is there anything more that the Biden administration can do in regards to defeating COVID-19? You know, Dan, this is one of the toughest questions. There's no good answer to your question or to a lot of these things. So long as somewhere between 40 and 50% of the country refuses to either believe that what we're dealing with is real and or subsequently refuses to get vaccinated or wear a mask, this is going to be with us. This is going to be with us for a year, two years. We don't know. We see that Omicron is moving very, very fast. It's going to move fast. The winter picks up. People are going to get sick. What we've seen is that those who are vaccinated and boosted, like myself, even if they get sick, they're still able to contract it, but the symptoms tend to be much more mild. Hospitalization is very, very low, if not anecdotal. But if you get this and you are unvaccinated and have any sort of comorbidity, you're going to be in trouble. And Dan, the problem is, I think you see this with the president and the White House and the statement they put out on COVID-19 just earlier this week. If people won't take their friends, their family, their colleagues people they've heard of dying from this thing, like if they won't take it seriously, not a lot anybody else can do about it. What I would say, though, is that if I were the Biden administration, I would counsel a couple of things. One is that remember when this first started, Dan Patrick, who's the lieutenant governor of Texas, said if old people need to die from COVID-19 to save the economy, we should do that. Now, almost two years later, I would take a slightly different and certainly less morbid and less inhumane version of that, which is if we don't get this under control, the people who will be harmed the most will be the elderly, those of lower socioeconomic status, and small business owners and their employees. And so what I would say is make it an economic argument. Do you want the coffee shop in your neighborhood to stay open? Do you want the mom and pop restaurant to stay open? Do you want the small store, the boutique to stay open? Then get your shots, wear your mask. Because some of these places have survived one shutdown, maybe they've survived a second, but they're probably not going to survive a third. And a lot of these places, when they go, they don't come back. And after the economic aspect of it, too, I would say they've got to do everything they can to keep schools open. That's not only good for kids, it's good for parents, especially working class parents. I assume it's better for teachers, but it's also good politics, gang. You know, there were a lot of like hot takes coming out of Virginia in November after Glenn Youngkin beat Terry McAuliffe. 
the one that should be a giant red flashing light to Democrats is it was education. And it wasn't about critical race theory. It was about the fact that kids were home for like 18 months. It's really hard on families. It's really hard on parents. The chaos alone upsets people. If nothing else, if your kid has to wear a mask to go to school, they're probably going to get over it. If kids have to stay home because they got sick, they'll do that. But you know what? You got to keep kids safe. You got to keep teachers safe. and You got to keep those schools open. If you don't, then that policy decision will have an electoral outcome, which is parents, whether or not they hate Republicans, will take it out on Democrats because they will see Democrats as the ones responsible for that. And so what I would say is that everything the president can do to leverage his allies in the education community to do everything they can to keep schools open, I think is going to be hugely important. You know, maybe that's contrary thinking, but I think that sometimes politics and life collide, and this is going to be one of those. And so what I would say is this, is that if you've got a friend or you've got a family member who won't get vaccinated, don't scream at him because that's not going to do any good. But I would say that from the president's perspective, make it about the quicker we get over this, the quicker life gets back to normal. And life only gets back to normal if we all want it back to normal. And wishing it to be so does not make it so. And as we've seen, the novel coronavirus does not care about your politics, doesn't care about what state you live in, doesn't care about what country you live in, doesn't care if you drive a Honda or if you drive a Ferrari. If you do not do the things you can to protect yourself from it, it will find you. And the longer that we let it go out there uncontrolled, the more it will change and the harder it will become to defeat. So guys, listen, before I get out of here, I do want to say, if you've been vaccinated, great. If you haven't, please get your shot or your second shot. If you haven't been boosted, get out there. I think the last time I read, it said only 14% of Americans had received their booster shot. Look, I got mine. It knocked me on my rear end for 24 hours. I can tell you right now that my wife is asleep out cold because she just got her booster shot yesterday. This is the time we live in, guys. I know it's frustrating. I know that it creates this sort of tension and upsetness that is absolutely and totally understandable. I mean, how many of us have had plans ruined? You know, we were going to see family. We're not seeing family. Some people we haven't seen in a couple of years. My parents haven't seen my kids in two years. These things are real. They're frustrating. They're upsetting. But I'll tell you this, is that everyone you know keeping themselves safe, being responsible, is going to be the fastest way out of this. And fast is not going to be days, and it's not going to be weeks, and it's probably not even going to be months. It's probably going to be a year. But I know this, is that all of us in this community, and we are a community of millions of people, if we all do we can, whether or not it's on COVID, whether or not it's on democracy, whether or not it's on common decency, if we all do the things we need to do as part of our communities, as part of our states, as part of our country, then we're going to be successful. We're going to be successful day in and day out, week in and week out. And come next November, we are going to be successful in making sure that we secure democracy for at least another couple of years. And as soon as we get through this fight, we're right into the next one. But I want to say thank you to everybody for an incredible first year behind this microphone and the honor of letting me yak at you for an hour or so a week. The fact that so many of you have tuned in, so many of you send kind notes. Uh, some of you send not so kind notes and I, I wanna wish you guys a Merry Christmas too. But anyway, we will have a couple of terrific Encore episodes next week. Stay tuned for our January 6th programming. You're not gonna wanna miss it. But until then, I wanna say thank you to everybody. Have a very merry and happy Christmas and a very healthy new year. And I will talk to you soon.
thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.